on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is Critical is the show where we question all of your cultural assumptions, like that the best time to go solar is when you finally figure out the tax credits, or what model to get, or how to get a deal at Best Buy, or or whether the sun god has spoken to you from the house of Leo to instruct you if you're worthy of electricity at all. When really, the best time to go solar was 30 years ago. And the second best time is right now. The other day on Alex Steffen's amazing podcast, The Snap Forward, I heard the best ever assessment of climate action. Basically, he says, we've been told we need to get some agreement in D.C. on climate. And it turns out, even with this Manchin-Schumer collaboration, we're never going to get that agreement. Instead, Alex says, we've been knocked over the heads with something he calls predatory delay. That's five decades of oil companies telling us we need to think about this and that and jobs and climate denial. And hey, isn't it better to drive a gas car for another decade till prices come down or solar it seems cooler and Priuses aren't so stupid? So climate action according to Alex Steffen, is speed. He reminds us that the tech is already so good, you just got to do your thing today. Get an EV. Go solar. So that's what I did the minute I heard Alex Steffen's podcast. I roused up my electrician husband, and we bought some shit online with credit cards, and now he's plugging it in with AC and DC and what have you. And soon, we will be carbon almost zero plus no electric bills. Are you inspired a little bit? Are you jealous? Well, that's what I'm aiming for here, because the best thing you can do for the climate right now is to make your move to decarbonize and then thirst it up on social media as you brag about how easy it is to go solar, how great the incentives are, and how it didn't take you very long. That way you get to serve as a mentor to people who will DM you and you get to be like their AA sponsor and talk them through their hesitations. And in three weeks, they will also be up and solarized like you and getting their rad tax credit. On and on, paying it forward so now you too can be a smug solar mentor. 
Today's guest is Umer Irfan, a journalist at Vox who covers climate. We're going to be talking all things climate action, but in particular, heat. What we can do about the blistering heat and about the double-edged sword represented by air conditioning. Umer, welcome to This is Critical. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm so happy you're here because heat has been a preoccupation of this show and of mine for a long time. You have spent time in 111 degrees Fahrenheit. What is it like? I mean, it's it's hard to just put it into words, but it's just miserable. It's almost painful to be outside. You know, you have to kind of rethink your cooling strategy. You know, you'd think that you'd want to be outside in t-shirt and shorts, but once it starts getting that hot, you want to cover back up again, basically, hmm. just to keep the sun off of your skin and restructure your whole life around it. Like in Phoenix, for instance, you know, a lot of construction now has to take place overnight because that's hmm. the only time of day you can safely have people outdoors and even where things like construction materials are cool enough to, to actually work with. And you feel it. Like, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been close to like heat exhaustion before, but it's a very uncomfortable and unnerving sensation when you feel like you're out of sweat, you're out of water. Yeah. You can feel like your organs moving inside. It just feels so um, perturbing. It's it's like, I don't want anyone to ever experience this. And, and the experience is hard to describe, but it's to the point where it would be cruel to ask people to be out there. Like even in those circumstances where we have like all these delivery apps and all these other kinds of things that we can get things sent to us. Like at, the, at that point, we should have like a heat emergency situation or a protocol where we just keep people home and indoors the way we would during periods of extreme cold or in other kinds of disasters. Yeah. And you're talking about being in the United States in heat or in Texas in, in heat. But you've also spent time in places where there is no refuge from the heat. I've heard that, you know, there are places where people are trying to cook inside buildings with cement walls that feel like hot pans. And, you know, this is intolerable. And anyone seeing this kind of cruelty, any sane person should move to rectify it. Whatever your politics, this is no longer any kind of political issue or subject for debate. It's an emergency. So tell us a little bit about what is most urgently needed, in particular in India, where this is a bigger problem than almost anywhere else. What do we need to do now? As far as what we need to do right now, I mean, there are definitely ways we can save people's lives. You know, heat is one of the deadliest weather phenomena around the world. And there's a lot of ways, though, that we can cope with it. One of the most important ones is to, you know, make sure people are properly hydrated and cooled. That gets harder in places where you have lots of people concentrated in urban areas. Urban areas heat up faster than their surrounding environments. This is called the urban heat island effect. And so in places like in India and in Pakistan, where you have these very dense cities with so many people into one place, you have a lot of risk that's aggregated in this one small area. There's that excess amount of heat, and then there's a limitation in the resources to cool. One, the water starts to run low when you have excess heat. Water evaporates faster when it's hotter. And then you have huge electricity demand. And not everybody can get access to electricity, and those that do are often facing rationing. So I spoke to folks who were in India and Pakistan during that heat wave we saw in May. You know, about one in eight people on Earth were affected by that heat wave. And even the folks I talked to, you know, who are fairly well off, middle class, upper middle class folks who are, you know, academics and so on, we're talking about how they struggled even to work from home. They had to ration the heat inside their homes. There was only a couple rooms where they could keep the cooling on and they could work from. And then as they left, they basically had to like 
put all the work that they needed to do on hold where they were trying to just survive with that. Now, imagine not having a roof over your head or having an air conditioner or a fan. It adds to the uh, risk. And so not just directly from the heat, but heat makes everything else also worse. You know, like medications don't work as well, many of them under extreme heat. Um, other health hmm. conditions like heart disease and breathing difficulties, those also get worse. Air pollution gets worse under heat. So, you know, it's not one thing. It's a you know, sort of this confluence of multiple intersecting threats. Now, that means that you have to target this from multiple different approaches. You need to have a multi-pronged approach. So cooling is certainly an important way, but you also have to think about air pollution. You also have to think about how we design cities and neighborhoods. Like, do we have enough green spaces and vegetation? Is there enough water circulating in the air to keep it cool? So you have to make both like these individual decisions and collective decisions in order to cope with the hazards we're facing right now. Yeah, this is really urgent stuff. The economic historian Adam Tooze recently pointed out that there is an enormous streak of discrimination, not just structural, that the hottest neighborhoods are typically poor neighborhoods all over the world, and that there are people who can't afford air conditioning, but that there's a predominant idea, at least in the global north, that people closer to the equator, closer to the tropics, can endure higher temperatures than people in the North. This is something that I have to say, I think I had blindly believed. You know, the same way that we say, you know, I'm from New Hampshire, quite near Canada, you know, that I was accustomed to snow or that I was accustomed to cold. And I think I assumed that there were certain bodies that were accustomed to heat. He says, absolutely not. And that partly this kind of discrimination has kept people from looking to India to see that it's a place where the temperatures get much higher than Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona in the U.S. Do you see any evidence of that kind of discrimination? To an extent. So the human body can acclimate to certain temperatures to a certain degree. So there is a little bit of merit to that idea, but it's not very much. You know, after having weeks and months and years of exposure to a certain climate, you adapt physiologically, but you also adapt in your environment. You know, you're not going to have a very condensed house that traps a lot of heat in a very hot climate. You're going to have higher roofs. You're going to have more windows. You make all these structural changes. And so that's part of why people in warmer climates can endure slightly higher temperatures. And we see this effect across the population. You know, heat waves tend to be more dangerous in areas that ordinarily have cooler temperatures. Mm, like Portland. Precisely. The, in the Pacific Northwest, the reason why it was so dangerous in Seattle and in Portland and, in, you know, in, mm -hmm. in Vancouver was because these are regions that actually have the lowest penetration of air conditioning in North America. These are places that don't normally get that hot. So even if it doesn't get to triple digit temperatures, if it gets to 90 degrees, that can still be very dangerous because people are not physiological logically acclimated, but they're also not socially and culturally acclimated. They don't realize what dehydration looks like. They don't understand that you need to take frequent breaks. Their homes are designed to trap heat rather than dissipate heat. And so that happens um, to a limited extent. But at the same time, there are upper limits to what your body can adapt to. And we are seeing those limits. So the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they put together this like massive assessment of climate science. They started looking at you know the limits to adaptation. There are physical limits 
limits to what we can actually endure as humans on this planet. One of the key benchmarks for this is something called the wet bulb temperature. This is basically the hottest temperature at which water will not evaporate. And so this is basically sort of a proxy for how well sweating can cool you off. You know, you've been in an environment where it's extremely humid. I'm in Washington, D.C. It's humid here all the time. You know, even if the breeze is blowing, the sweat doesn't evaporate off your body and it feels oppressive. And it can actually get dangerous. So at wet bulb temperatures of about 95 degrees, if the air is so saturated with humidity that at 95, water doesn't evaporate, a healthy person can endure that for maybe about six hours before they start suffering severe health effects. And that's a healthy person. You know, anybody who's outside of this very narrow spectrum of what we consider optimally healthy is at greater risk at these temperatures or at even at lower temperatures. The threshold for danger is far lower. We're going to take a short break. Coming up, when we talk about the danger of heat, we often focus on heat stroke. But heat can be a lot more insidious, affecting our bodies and minds in subtle but life-altering ways. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. with Umer Irfan, a reporter at Vox covering climate. Umer, we've been talking about just the debilitating heat effects, um, but there are also effects of heat that can be more insidious. Um, To take just one example, there's a study or, or studies showing that in hot schools without air conditioning, test scores are not as high, or as the Washington Post put it in 2018, heat makes you dumb. So when you're talking about people acclimating to heat, some of it is just recognizing a lower level of functioning as a set point, you know, which is simply inhumane. Yeah, you know, in some parts of the world, they have sort of a culture that deals with extreme heat. You know, many parts of the world, they have like an afternoon nap, a siesta. And that's not out of laziness. It's because you can't get anything done during that time of day. You have to structure your whole lifestyle, your social environment around that heat. And, you know, with air conditioning, we've sort of been able to get around that. But increasingly, we're also hitting the limits of what we can do with air conditioning. Even in wealthy countries, you know, we're struggling with that. You know, in Texas, for instance, they're hitting the upper limit of what their power grid can endure. And as that temperature goes up, productivity goes down. There's plenty of research in offices and and around productivity that shows that, you know, as average indoor temperatures go up, just by a few degrees, people make more mistakes as they write. People have more injuries. People just Mm. have harder time concentrating. And of course, there is a huge discrepancy economically even within, you know, wealthy regions. You know, say, for example, in New York City, for instance, about Mm -hmm. one in five, about 22% of the population is black. But black people make up about half of deaths related to heat. So we're talking about one of the wealthiest countries in the world with one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And there's still such a discrepancy that you see that fall around racial lines in such a stark way. So, you know, you have to look at the big aggregate level, at the global level, the discrepancies we're seeing between countries, but then even within countries, even within cities, we're seeing this divide between those that can and cannot adapt. I mean, before we get to air conditioning and its its discontents, I want to talk briefly about heat stroke itself. And this is not 
simply to be shocking. It is partly to say what exactly we are talking about. So where climate change can have a lot of data associated with it, but I think bringing it down to the human body is one way to make it palpable and understandable to folks. So what do you know about heat stroke and how it kills a person? Yeah, you know, this is more than just being hot. You know, when we're talking about getting to the heat stroke territory, we're talking about your body's functions shutting down. Like at that point, you know, one of the paradoxical things you see with heat stroke is people's skin gets clammy, blood circulation stops, you know, you can't move heat within your body. And that means that the cells and the tissues actually start to die. And so, you know, people can blackout, people die from heat stroke. I mean, obviously, this is very lethal. And a lot of people who are not acclimated to heat don't recognize the warning signs. Remember, heat intersects with every other health condition as well. And so heat stroke is like the most obvious and directly related thing. But oftentimes, it's hard to see in the medical records because very few doctors are going to say, you know, cause of death, heat, when it comes to something like a heart attack during a heat wave because the proximate cause is something different, but the heat certainly made it worse and much more likely. Mm. And we're also Mm -hmm. seeing this in not just these acute health conditions, but some chronic conditions as well. So in the United States, for instance, we have what's called like a kidney stone belt. Basically, if you look at the parts of the country that are warmer, we have a higher rate of kidney stone formation because people get dehydrated more quickly and that allows the salts to crystallize and form kidney stones more readily in these people. And we're seeing over time as the climate changes is that belt is rising. It's moving further and further north in the country. And so heat has a physiological effect, not just right away, but over the long term, you know, over a season, over years. Uh, Similarly, things like multiple sclerosis, there's evidence that heat worsens the symptoms of multiple sclerosis. And we see, you know, more exacerbations with these kinds of illnesses in the southern part of the country in places closer to the equator. But we're seeing that increase as average temperatures rise in further and further north areas. Right. So I want to talk about air conditioning. In the global north, it's common to argue that air conditioning is a kind of nice luxury and that we should all turn our air conditioners off in order to conserve energy, that it's kind of optional to have AC. So why not, you know, turn on a fan instead of an air conditioner? But what about air conditioning in those areas where the heat is just intolerable? It's absolutely essential to life. Like if you intend to survive in the heat wave that we're experiencing right now in parts of the country, like you cannot function as as a human, you cannot function as a society without this being in place. And you're right to point out that there's this sort of perception problem, you know, heating in much of the country is considered as like a necessity in many cities and um, have ordinances in place, for instance, that even if you don't pay your bills, the landlord is not allowed to shut off your heat. Many of them will have rules that say that, you know, every building or living space has to have a minimum amount of heat. But where that air conditioning as a luxury idea manifests is how access is limited. You know, we don't have very many subsidy programs to give air conditioning to people in poorer environments and in some of these hot regions. For instance, you know, there's no air conditioning requirement for federal housing. Many prisons don't have any air conditioning requirement. And so because we treat, again, air conditioning as a luxury and not as a necessity for life. And so that perception, first of all, has to change. But at the same time, you know, air conditioning isn't free. It costs a lot of resources to manufacture them. It costs a lot of energy to run them. And oftentimes when everybody's switching them all on at the same time, this is where we stress the power grid the most. And so while air conditioning is essential, 
for survival in, in many parts of the country. The use of it is stressing the very infrastructure that allows people there to survive. And over the long term, if air conditioning is still powered by fossil fuels, that contributes more to climate change and, of course, worsens the problem into the future. You know, I'm going to ask you what maybe sounds like a dumb question, but why has no one been able to devise a solar air conditioner or far less energy-intensive air conditioner? Tell me about why it's so hard to retool air conditioners or find a sustainable alternative. Well, there has been a lot of progress on air conditioning. You know, they're vastly more efficient now than they were, you know, decades ago. They used the refrigerant gases that, for instance, no longer deplete the ozone layer. Now, AC refrigerant gases, most of them are still very potent greenhouse gases, but many of the more modern designs use a lot less of them and they leak a lot less. And so that's uh, helping, you know, mitigate their environmental impact. And then more recently, you know, we've seen a lot of attention in the U.S., but this has actually caught on in many other countries for a long time, the use of heat pumps. So these are basically sort of like reversible air conditioners. They function as heaters in the winter and they function as coolers in the summer. Ah. And they're vastly more efficient than the conventional air conditioning designs. It's just that in the U.S., they never really took off. The main barrier is just we don't have a lot of experience with them. And oftentimes, you know, you don't have people trained to do this and we don't have a big infrastructure and economies of scale. That's starting to change. You know, the Biden administration actually signed an executive order using the Defense Production Act to make more heat pumps in the U.S. So essentially they want to, you know, be a big purchaser and then use that bulk purchase to try to get a discount on these devices to get more people to use them. But, you know, the main use case is going to be in new housing. The problem is we have a lot of existing housing and those sunk costs, that's really where the barrier is. So we have to really be able to retrofit a lot of the infrastructure that we have. That's costly, that's expensive, and it's psychologically, it's difficult. You're like, things are working fine right now. Why do I want to spend thousands of dollars to get a marginal benefit that's going to pay off years down the line? Yeah, And so that's where you need things like incentives, tax breaks, and other kinds of perks to try to get people motivated to make those changes, even if they think things are working okay now, because they can certainly be working a lot better. We're going to take another quick break. When we return, parts of our country have been flooded. Other parts are on fire. How can communities rebuild to better withstand their new climates? Or should they rebuild at all? On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Umer Irfan, a climate journalist at Vox. So, Umer, as we speak, Kentucky is flooding. Homes have been swept away. Dozens of people are dead. Hundreds are missing. Maybe it'll be more by the time we're broadcast here. In California, tens of thousands of acres are burning. So I think when you talk about restructuring a country for cooling— The attention and money needs to go first to the zip codes where people have lost their houses and need to see them rebuilt, possibly with the heat pump you mentioned. That's something I'd like 
I'd like to see the Biden administration understand that this is a state-by-state question uh, and that half the country is experiencing floods and the other half has experienced such horrible heat and what that might look like. Yeah, you know, I mean, when we, in the wake of a disaster, that's the critical question. Like, do you rebuild at all? First and foremost, Mm. like that decision is one that we have to increasingly think about. Is the risk too much to bear? And in the U.S., we have sort of this mixed bag of how we approach this in the wake of disasters. For a long time, you know, FEMA rules made it so that you could only rebuild to exactly what you had before. So if you got hit by a disaster that you didn't anticipate, you couldn't use federal money to try to invest more to harden it, to like lift houses or to build seawalls and things like that, other kinds of protection. And in the U.S., for instance, we have this national flood insurance program that basically absorbs a lot of the risk for flood. And what that ends up doing is telling homeowners to rebuild their houses in these flood plains as those flood plains are getting larger and more frequently flooded. And so we end up absorbing that risk more and more. Conversely, in California, the fire insurance industry is mostly privatized. And that means that private insurance providers and homeowners insurance providers have been kicking people off of their policies, basically mm-hmm. saying, we're no longer going to insure your property because the fire risk here is too high. And the question then is like, how do people respond to that? Now, ideally with these kinds of market signals, you would hope that people would respond to those incentives. They'd move away from high risk areas areas into lower risk areas. But moving is expensive. Moving is really hard. Nobody wants to leave their places, especially if you've invested building a life in in, in a house. And so you need to, if you are hit by disaster to, in a lot of cases, rebuild, retrofit, and optimize for resilience. But all that's also really expensive as well. And the question then is who pays those costs? Is this something that's going to be borne by the private insurance companies? Should the federal government come in? And, you know, while it can be easy for a lot of us to say things like, okay, just don't live on a shoreline, you know, about 40% of the U.S. population lives in a coastal county. And so things like sea level rise are going to be affecting a lot of people. But even if you come inland from the shore, there's still plenty of places inside the country that are getting flooded. We saw, you know, just this week in the Midwest and in St. Louis, these massive floods. There's almost no place in the country that isn't going to be affected by extreme weather or climate change or some of these effects that are going to be worsened over time. And so these are risks that we all have to bear together. And the question then is, how do we distribute them in an equitable way? How do we make sure one group isn't bearing more risk or one group isn't getting an exceptionally large benefit? That's a political question. And because we've devolved so much of this to local authorities, it's going to be really hard to come up with a cohesive national strategy to deal with this. But it's one we urgently need. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to be going through this cycle over and over again. Mm-hmm. I've recently read, maybe you have Elizabeth Rush's book, Rising, about floodplain populations as a series of kind of oral histories of these places. And one thing she notes that's somewhat heartening is that in the Delta, indigenous populations have been given grants to relocate and leaving land that, you know, in the one case that I read about, indigenous inhabitants have been there 10,000, 30,000 years um, is not easy. But we do understand that moving to high ground when your land is flooded, and that's what the, the the man she interviews said, that relocation is, in some ways, the only solution. Yeah, you know, in the United States, we already have climate change refugees. You know, in the, in the Gulf Coast, we have communities like the Ile de Jean Charles, even in the um, Alaska Barrier Islands as well. Some of those are starting to be evacuated as well as sea levels rise. And so... That's already starting to take place. And 
in addition to just like the social effects, I mean, this is something that's going to also have a huge political effect. When you have people moving from one part of the country to another, you change the balance of power throughout the country. And of course, when people migrate, they need resources. And so that can also create friction with where the places where they settle, who's actually going to accommodate these people where they move? Will they have the resources to rebuild their lives? You know, these are huge issues that we're going to see, you know, just inside this country. Now think about internationally. There are entire countries that are going to end up underwater. Whose obligation is it to take in those people? Where can they go? Where can they restart their lives? And who's required to pay? These are really thorny questions that are, you know, derailing international climate discussions all the time. You know, just today, they found that, like, the wealthier countries that were supposed to contribute to this international climate fund for resilience for these developing countries, they have fallen far short of their commitments. And now you're seeing many of these developing countries, even though they are facing problems like climate change, they're leaning more into fossil fuels because it's the only way they can survive in the near term. And so you have this tension between, you know, the people that contributed the most to climate change but will suffer the least and the people that contributed the least that will suffer the most. Hmm. Okay, one final question about you. You live in D.C., which gets very hot and humid. And what I've seen in the pandemic is eyes opened to the possibilities of moving and in many cases, moving to higher ground, moving north, moving to cooler climates. Do you think about what's next for you and your community, you and the people you love? Yeah, you know, I've been quite fortunate here in D.C. that I've always had good living conditions here. And where I currently live, I live next to a large park, which acts as sort of like a heat sink and an air conditioner. And that's always been a nice perk to have here. And so while areas are heating up, communities are also, you know, some of the best equipped forms of how we cope with them. You know, we can deal with this to a limited extent as individuals, but as we come together to redesign things like our neighborhoods and to build green spaces, but also to make sure that we're checking on each other, this is how we cope and survive and endure these things. You know, as average temperatures have risen, over the past 50, 100 years, we've seen that deaths related to natural disasters have actually gone down, which is a mm -hmm. very good sign. But that's not something we can take for granted. One is because we're better at forecasting them, but the other is also that we have better tools to cope with them. And so this shows that, you know, while this does seem like an overwhelming problem, it is solvable. But at the same time, you know, because we have these solutions, then that creates a moral obligation to solve these problems. You know, you can throw up your hands and say, I can't do anything if you have no answer. But we do have an answer. We know what works as far as being able to mitigate some of the impacts of extreme heat, offering cooling, but also things like passive cooling in the way we design our buildings, how we design our neighborhoods, and giving people options to move from, you know, homes to workplaces that minimize their exposure to these extreme elements. And then having, you know, infrastructure for where we can check in on people to make sure that if they are facing, you know, potential heat stress, that they have access to health care. And so it's a complicated set of solutions, but they do work and we have been able to deploy them. And our focus, I think, from here on out should be to look at the places where they're lacking and bring them up to speed. You know, if you look around the world, more than 90% of deaths related to extreme weather are still occurring in developing countries. Mm. So there's a big divide, but there's a huge opportunity to help close this gap. Um, and so as I think about, you know, where I'm going to live, I mean, I know that, you know, wherever I go, there is going to be a risk of some disaster, but I'm often looking for communities that basically places that are thinking thoughtfully about this. And I think that ultimately is going to be what will help us get through some of the worst things that we may see in the future. Thank you so, so much, Umer. This is really, really interesting. And keep up the good work. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
that's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. For more information and to keep tabs on the show, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Ayla Fetter and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.